0: Welcome to Ratchet Book Club, where we read hood classics and good classics. I'm Derek. 916-633-1537. Ratchet, and Ratchet at gmail.com. Ratchet Book Club on Twitter. Ratchet Book Club on Facebook. Chapter 39. The dead detective, grinning in the moonlight, a pair of silvery quarters gleaming in the sockets once occupied by his eyes this was the image that plied the turbulent waters of junior kane's imagination when he sailed out the driver's door and came around to face the studebaker his heart dropping like an anchor his dry tongue his parched mouth his desiccated throat felt packed full of sand and his voice lay buried alive down there even when he saw no cop cadaver no ghoulish grin no two-bit eyes junior was not immediately relieved warily he circled the car Expecting to find the detective crouching and poised the spring. Nothing. The dome light was on in the car because the driver's door was standing open. He didn't want to lean inside and peer over the front seat. He had no weapon. He would be unbalanced, vulnerable. Still cautious, Junior approached the back door, the window. Vanadium's body lay on the car floor, wrapped in the tumble blanket. He had not heard the lawman rising up with malevolent intent, as he imagined. The body had simply rolled off the back seat onto the floor during the too-sharp 180-degree turn. Briefly, Junior felt humiliated. He wanted to drag the detective out of the car and stomp on his smug, dead face. That would not be a productive use of his time. Satisfying, but not prudent. Zed tells us time is the most precious thing we have because we're born with so little of it. Junior got in the car once more, slammed the door, and said, pan-faced, double-chin, half-ball, puke-collecting creep. Surprisingly, he received a lot of gratification from voicing this insult, even though Vanadium was too dead to hear it. Fat-necked, splay-nosed, jug-eared, eight-brow, birthmarked freak. This was better than taking slow, deep breaths. Periodically, on the way to Vanadium's house, Junior spat out a string of insults punctuated by obscenities he had time to think of quite a few because he drove five miles per hour below the posted speed limit he couldn't risk being stopped for a traffic violation with thomas vanadium the human stump was dead and bundled in the back during the past week junior had undertaken quiet background research on the press digitator with the badge the cop was unmarried he lived alone so this bold visit entailed no risk Junior parked in the two-car garage. No vehicle occupied the second space. On one wall hung an impressive array of gardening tools. In the corner was a potting bench. In a cabinet above the bench, Junior found a pair of clean, cotton gardening gloves. He tried them on, and they fit well enough. He had difficulty picturing the detective puttering in the garden on weekends, unless there were bodies buried under the roses. With the detective's key, he let himself into the house. While Jr. had been hospitalized, Vanadium had searched his place, with or without a warrant. Turnabout was satisfying. Vanadium clearly spent a lot of time in the kitchen. It was the only room in the house that felt comfortable and lived in. Lots of culinary gadgets, appliances, pots and pans hanging from a ceiling rack, a basket of onions, another of potatoes, a group in the bottles with colorful labels proved to be a collection of olive oils. The detective fancied himself a cook. Other rooms were furnished as barely as those in a monastery. Indeed, the dining room contained nothing whatsoever. A sofa and one armchair provided the seating in the living room. No coffee table. A small table beside the chair. A wall unit held a fine stereo system and a few hundred record albums. Junior examined the music collection. The policeman's taste ran to big band music and vocalists from the swing era. Evidently, Either Frank Sinatra was an enthusiasm that Victoria and the detective shared, or the nurse purchased some of the crooners' records expressly for their dinner engagement. This was not the time to ponder the nature of the relationship between the treacherous Miss Bressler and Vanadium. Junior had a bloody trail to cover, and precious time was ticking away. Besides, the possibilities repulsed him. The very thought of a splendid-looking woman like Victoria submitting to a grotesque like Vanadium what have withered his soul if he had possessed a soul. The study was the size of a bathroom. The cramped space barely allowed for a battered pine desk, a chair, and one filing cabinet. The unmatched suite of bedroom furniture, cheap and scarred, might have been purchased at a thrift shop. A double bed and one nightstand. A small dresser. As was true of the entire house, the bedroom was immaculate. The wood floor gleamed as though polished by hand. A simple white Chanel spread conformed to the bed as smoothly and tautly as a top blanket tucked around a soldier's barracks bunk. Knickknacks and mementos were not to be found anywhere in the house. And until now, Junior had seen nothing hanging on the barren walls except the calendar in the kitchen. A cast bronze figure, fixed to lacquer walnut and want of raw dogwood, suffered above the bed. This crucifix, contrasting starkly with the white walls, reinforced the impression of monastic economy. In Junior's estimation, this was not the way that a normal person lived. This was the home of a deranged loner, a dangerously obsessive man. Having been an object of Thomas Vanadium's fixation, Junior felt fortunate to have survived. He shuddered. In the closet, a limited wardrobe did not fully occupy available rod space. On the floor, shoes were neatly arranged toe-to-heel. The upper shelf of the closet held boxes and two inexpensive suitcases press board, laminated with green vinyl. He took down the suitcases and put them on the bed. Vanadium owned so few clothes that the two bags had sufficient capacity to accommodate half the contents of the closet and dresser. Junior tossed garments on the floor and across the bed to create the impression that the detective had packed with haste. After being imprudent enough to blast Victoria Breastler five times with a service revolver, perhaps in a jealous rage, or perhaps he had gone nuts, Vanadium would have been frantic to flee justice. From the bathroom, Junior gathered an electric razor and toiletries. He added these to the suitcases. After carrying the two pieces of luggage to the car in the garage, he returned to the study. He sat at the desk and examined the contents of the drawers, then turned to the file cabinet. He wasn't entirely sure what he hoped to find. Perhaps an envelope or a cash box with folding money, which a fleeing murderer would surely pause to take with him. Suspicions might be raised if he left it behind. Perhaps a savings account passbook. In the first drawer, he discovered an address book. Logically, Vanadian would have taken it with him, even if on the land from a murder rap, so Junior tucked it in his jacket pocket. When his search of the desk drawers was only half completed, the telephone rang. Not the usual strident bell, but a modulated electric brrrr. He had no intention of answering it. The second ring was followed by a click. Then a familiar droning voice said, Hello, I'm Thomas Vanadium. Like a spring-loaded novelty snake erupting from a can, Jr. exploded up from the chair, nearly knocking it over. But I am not here right now. Swinging towards the open door, he saw that the dead detective was true to his word. He wasn't there. The voice continued, issuing from a device that stood on the desk beside the phone. Please don't hang up. This is a telephone answering machine. Leave a message after you hear the tone, and I'll return your call later. The word answer phone was imprinted on the black plastic casing of the machine. Junior had heard of this invention, but until now he had never seen one. He supposed that an obsessive like Vanadium might go to any lengths, including this exotic technology, to avoid missing an important call. The tone sounded, as promised, and a man's voice spoke from the box. It's Max. you psychic. I found the hospital here. Poor kid had a cerebral hemorrhage, arising from a hypertensive crisis caused by... eclampsia, I think it is. Baby survived. Call me, huh? Max hung up. The antiphone made a series of small robot mouse noises and then fell silent. Amazing. Junior was tempted to experiment with the controls. Maybe other messages were recorded on the machine. Listening to them would be delicious even if every one of them turned out to be as meaningless to him as Max's, a little like browsing through a stranger's diary. Finding nothing more of interest than study, he considered searching the rest of the house. The night was in flight, however, and he had a lot to do before a swoop straight into morning. Leave the lamps burning, the door unlocked. A murderer, frantic to vanish while the victim remained undiscovered, wouldn't be worried about the cost of electricity or protecting against burglary. Dringer drove boldly away. Zed counseled boldness. Because he kept imagining the stealthy sounds of a dead cop rising in vengeance behind him, Dringer switched on the radio. He tuned in a station featuring a top forty countdown. The DJ announced song number four for the week. The Beatles She's a Woman. The Fab Four filled the Studebaker with music. Everyone thought the mop tops were the coolest thing ever. Ever. But the junior, their music was just all right. He wasn't stirred to sing along, and he didn't find their stuff particularly danceable. He was a patriotic guy, and he preferred American rock to the British brand. He had nothing against the English. No prejudices against people of any nationality. Nevertheless, he believed that the American Top 40 ought to feature American music exclusively. Crossing Spruce Hills with John Paul George, Ringo, and Dead Thomas, Jr. headed back towards Victoria's place, where Sinatra was no longer singing. Number three on the charts was Mr. Lonely by Bobby Vinton, an American talent from Cannesburg, Pennsylvania. Jr. sang along. He cruised past the Bresler residence without slowing. By this time, Vinton had finished, commercials had ran, and the number two song had started, Come See About Me by The Supremes. More good American music. The Supremes were Negroes, sure, but Junior was not a bigot. Indeed, he had once made passionate love to a Negro girl. Harmonizing with Diana Ross, Mary Wilson, and Florence Ballard, he drove to the granite quarry three miles beyond the town limits. A new quarry, operated by the same company, lay a mile farther north. This was the old one, abandoned after decades of cutting. Years ago, a stream had been diverted to fill the vast excavation. Stockfish were added mostly trout and bass. As a recreational site, Quarry Lake could be judged only a partial success. During the mining operation, trees were cleared well back from the edge of the dig, so that much of the shore would be unshaded on a hot summer day. And along half the strand, signs were posted warning ungraded shore, immediate deep water. In places where lake met land, the bottom lay over a hundred feet below. The Beatles began singing the number one song, I Feel Fine, as Junior turned off the county highway and followed the lake road northeast around the oil black water. They had two titles in the American Top 5. In disgust, he switched off the radio. The previous April, the lads from Liverpool acclaimed all five of the Top 5. Real Americans, like the Beach Boys in the Four Seasons, were forced to settle for lower numbers. It made you wonder who really won the Revolutionary War. No one in junior circle seemed to care about the crisis in American music. He supposed he had a greater awareness of injustice than did most people. On this chilly January night, no campers or fishermen a state claim along the lake. Because the trees were far back enough to be lost in the night, the immediate shore and pulled blackness that it encircled appeared as desolate as any landscape on a world without an atmosphere. Too far from Spruce Hills to be a popular make-out spot for teenagers, Quarry Lake was a turnoff for young lovers also because it had a reputation as haunted territory. Over five decades, four quarry workers had died in mining accidents. County lore included stories of ghosts roaming the depths of the excavation before it was flooded, and subsequently the shoreline, after the lake was filled. Dringer intended to add one stocky ghost to the party. Perhaps on a summer night in years to come, at the edge of the light fall from his Coleman lantern, a fisherman will see a semi-transparent vanadium, providing entertainment with an ethereal quarter. At a point where deep water met the shoreline, Junior drove off the road and onto the Strand. He parked 20 feet from the water, facing the lake, and switched off the headlights and the engine. Leaning across the front seat, he lowered the passenger's window six inches. Then he lowered the driver's side window at equal distance. He wiped the steering wheel and every surface that he might have touched during the drive from Victoria's to the detective's place, where he had acquired the garden gloves that he still wore. He got out of the car and, with the door open, wiped the exterior handle. He doubted the Studebaker would ever be found, but successful men were, without exception, those who paid attention to detail. For a while, he stood beside the sedan, letting his eyes adapt to the gloom. The night was holding its breath again. The previous breeze now pent up in the breast of darkness. Having risen higher in the sky during the past couple hours, the gold-coined moon reminted itself as silver, and in the black lake, its reflection rolled across the knuckles of the quiet wavelets. Convinced he was alone and unobserved, Junior leaned into the car and shifted it out of park. He released the handbrake. The strand was inclined towards the lake. He closed the door and got out of the way as the Studebaker rolled forward, gathering speed. With remarkably little splash, the sedan eased into the water. Briefly it floated, bobbling near shore, tipped forward by the weight of the engine. As the lake flooded in through the floor vents, the vehicle settled steadily, then sank rapidly when water reached the two partially open windows. This Detroit-built gondola would swiftly navigate the sticks without a black rub gondolier to pull it onward. The moment that the roof of the car vanished beneath the water, Junior hurried away, retracing on foot the route that he had driven. He didn't have to go all the way back to Vanadium's place, only to the dark house where he left Victoria Bresler. He had a date with a dead woman. Chapter 40 Not in the mood to garden, but wearing the proper gloves, Junior clicked on the foyer light, the hall light, the kitchen light, and stepped around the club-smothered shot nurse to the range, he switched on the right oven, in which an unfinished pot roast was cooling, and the left oven, in which the dinner plates waited to be warmed. He cranked up a flame again under a pot of water that had been boiling earlier, and glanced hungrily at the uncooked pasta that Victoria waited and set aside. If the aftermath of his encounter with vanadium had not been so messy, Junior might have paused for dinner before wrapping up his work here. The walk back from Quarry Lake had taken almost two hours, in part because he had ducked out of sight in the trees and brush every time he heard traffic approaching. He was famished. Regardless of how well prepared the food, however, ambiance was a significant factor in the enjoyment of any meal, and bloodstained decor was not, in his view, conducive to fine dining. Earlier, he had set an open fit of vodka on the table, in front of Victoria. The nurse, no longer in the chair, sprawled on the floor as if she had emptied another bottle before this one. Junior poured half the vodka over the corpse, splashed some more around other parts of the kitchen, and spilled the last on the cooktop, where it trickled towards the active burner. This was not an ideal accelerant, not as effective as gasoline, but by the time he threw the bottle aside, the spirits found the flame. Blue fire flashed across the top of the range and followed drips down the baked enamel front to the floor. Blue flared to yellow, and the yellow darkened when the blaze found the cadaver. Playing with fire was fun when you didn't have to attempt to conceal the fact that it was arson. Atop the dead woman, Vanadium's leather ID holder ignited. The identification card would burn, but the badge was not likely to melt. The police would also identify the revolver. From the floor, Junior snatched up the bottle of wine that had twice failed to shatter, his lucky Merlot. He backed towards the hall door, watching as the fire spread. After lingering until certain that the house would soon be a seething pyre, he finally sprinted along the hall to the front door. Under a declining moon, he fled discreetly three blocks to a suburban, parked on a parallel street. He encountered no traffic, and on the way, he stripped off the gardening gloves and discarded them in a dumpster at a house undergoing remodeling. Not once did he look back to see if the fire had grown visible as a glow against the night sky. The events of victoria's were part of the past. He was finished with all that. Junior was a forward thinking, future oriented man. Halfway home, he heard sirens and saw the beacons of approaching emergency vehicles. He pulled the Suburban to the side of the road and watched his two fire trucks pass, followed by an ambulance. He felt remarkably well when he arrived home, calm, proud of his quick thinking and stalwart action, pleasantly tired. He hadn't chosen to kill again. This obligation had been thrust on him by fate. Yet he had proven that the boldness he had shown on the fire tower, rather than being a transient strength, was a deeply rooted quality. Although he harbored no fear of coming under suspicion for the murder of Victoria Bressler, he intended to leave Spruce Hills this very night. No future existed for him in such a sleepy backwater. A wider world awaited, and he had earned the right to enjoy all that it could offer him. He placed a phone call to Caitlin Hackachack his trolless and avaricious sister-in-law, asking her to dispose of Naomi's things, their furniture, and whatever of his own possessions he chose to leave behind. Although she had been rewarded a quarter of a million bucks in the family settlement with the state and county, Caitlin would be at the house by Don's first light if she thought she might make ten bucks from liquidating its contents. Junior intended to pack only a single bag, leaving most of his clothes behind. He could afford a fine new wardrobe, in the bedroom, as he opened up a suitcase on the bed, he saw the quarter, shiny, heads up, on the nightstand. If Junior were weak minded enough to succumb to madness, this was a moment where he would have fallen into an abyss of insanity. He heard an internal crackling, felt a terrible splintering in his mind, but he held himself together with sheer willpower, remembering to breathe slowly and deeply. He summoned enough courage to approach the nightstand. His hand trembled. He half expected the quarter to be illusory, to disappear between his pinching fingers, but it was real. When he held fast to his sanity, common sense eventually told him that the coin must have been left much earlier in the night, soon after he had set out for Victoria's house. In fact, in spite of the new locks, vanadian must have stopped here on his way to see Victoria, unaware that he would meet his death in her kitchen and at the hands of the very man he was tormenting. Jr.'s fear gave way to an appreciation for the irony in this situation. Gradually, he regained the ability to smile, tossed the coin in the air, caught it, and dropped it in his pocket. Just as the smile curved to completion, however, an awful thing happened. The humiliation began with a loud gurgle in his gut. Since dealing with Victoria and the detective, Jr. had taken pride in the fact that he had keeping his equanimity and, more important, his lunch. No acute nervous amesis, as he had suffered following poor Naomi's death. Indeed, he had an appetite. Now, trouble. Different from what he had experienced before, but just as powerful and terrifying. He didn't need to regurgitate, but he desperately needed to evacuate. His exceptional sensitivity remained a curse. He had been more profoundly affected by Victoria and Vanadium's tragic deaths than he had realized. Wrenched he was. With a cry of alarm, he bolted to the bathroom and made it with not a second to spare. He seemed to be on the throne long enough to witness the rise and fall of an empire. Later, weak and shaken, as he was packing his suitcase, the urge overcame him again. He was astonished to discover that anything could be left in his intestinal tract. He kept a few paperbacks to Caesar's dad's work in the bathroom, so the time spent on the job wouldn't be wasted. Some of his deepest insights into the human condition and his best ideas for self-improvement had come in this place, where Zed's luminous words seemed to shine a brighter light into his mind upon rereading. On this occasion, however, he couldn't have focused on the book even if he had the strength to hold it. The fierce paroxysms that clenched his guts also destroyed his ability to concentrate. By the time he had put his suitcase and three boxes of books, the collected works of Zed and selections from the Book of the Month Club, in the Suburban, Junior had rushed twice more to the bathroom. His legs were shaky, and he felt hollow, frail, as if he had lost more than was apparent, as if the essential substance of himself was gone. The word diarrhea was inadequate to describe this affliction. In spite of the books he had read to improve his vocabulary... Junior could not think of any word sufficiently descriptive and powerful enough to convey his misery and the hideousness of his ordeal. Panic set in when he began to wonder if these intestinal spasms were going to prevent him from leaving Spruce Hills. In fact, what if they required hospitalization? A pathologically suspicious cop, aware of Junior's acute amnesis following Naomi's death, might imagine the connection between this epic bout of diarrhea and Victoria's murder and Vanadium's disappearance. Here was an avenue of speculation that he did not want to encourage. He must get out of town while he still could. His very freedom and happiness depended on his speedy departure. During the past 10 days, he had proved that he was clever, bold, with exceptional inner resources. He needed to tap his deep well of strength and resolve now, more than ever. He had been through far too much, accomplished too much, to be brought down by mere biology. Aware of the dangers of dehydration, and put two half-gallon containers of Gatorade in the Suburban. Sweaty, chilled, trembling, weak-kneed, watery-eyed with self-pity, Junior spread a plastic garbage bag on the driver's seat. He got in the Suburban, twisted the key in the ignition, and groaned as the engine vibrations threatened to undo him. With only a faint twinge of sentimental longing, he drove away from the house that had been his and Naomi's love nest for 14 blissful months. He clenched the steering wheel tightly with both hands, clenched his teeth so fiercely that his jaw muscles bulged and twitched, and clenched his mind around a stubborn determination to get control of himself. Slow, deep breaths. Positive thoughts. The diarrhea was over, finished, part of the past. Long ago, he had learned never to dwell on the past, never to be overly concerned about the worries of the present, but to be focused entirely on the future. He was a man of the future. As he raced into the future, the past caught up with him in the form of intestinal spasms, and by the time he had driven only three miles, whimpering like a sick dog, he made an emergency stop at a service station to use the restroom. Thereafter, Junior managed to drive four miles before he was forced to pull off the road at another service station, after which he felt that his ordeal might be over. But less than ten minutes later, He settled for more rustic facilities in a clump of bushes alongside the highway, where his cries of anguish frightened small animals in a squeaking flight. Finally, only 30 miles south of Spruce Hills, he reluctantly acknowledged that deep, slow breathing, positive thoughts, high self-esteem, and firm resolve weren't enough to subdue his treacherous bowels. He needed to find lodging for the night. He didn't care about a swimming pool or a king-sized bed or a free continental breakfast. The only amenity that mattered was indoor plumbing. The seedy motel was called Sleepy Time Inn. But the grizzled, squint-eyed, sharp-faced night clerk must not have been the owner because he wasn't the type to have dreamed up cute spellings for the sign out front. Judging by his appearance and attitude, he was a former Nazi death camp commandant who had fled Brazil one step ahead of the Israeli Secret Service and was now hiding out in Oregon racked by cramps and too weak to carry his luggage.